and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 161, The High Watermark. Last time, as Army Groups North and Center stayed on the defensive, Army Group South, with the SS Viking Division leading the way, was to make for the oil fields of Baku on the west coast of the Caspian Sea. Drilling for oil there had been going on since 1846, and though the locals had a small window of independence during the Russian Revolution, in 1920 the Soviets invaded and retook the area. Baku was not only vital for its oil, but it was the gateway for Stalin to Iran and the Middle East in general. To lose Baku would hurt the Soviets in more than one way. On April 16, 1942, the Viking was told to join Kleist's 1st Panzer Army, which had its momentum stymied at Mostok, located about 300 miles northwest of Baku, just north of Stalin's homeland, Georgia. Yet the Viking commander, Felix Steiner, nor Kleist's chief of staff, thought much of this plan. As it was, their supply line was open to counterattack and destruction. To extend it another 300 miles was just asking for encirclement. Stalin had already shown his willingness to sacrifice his troops by the thousands, just to destroy hundreds of enemy troops. And ramping up the scale of losses on both sides seemed equally meaningless to Steiner. But Hitler ordered it so. Hence, the Viking was put with General Eugene Ott's 52nd Army Corps, who, right from the start, treated Steiner as a political hack and a nuisance, and their relationship would only go downhill from there. Steiner could have mentioned that it was the 52nd Army Corps that was bogged down and needed help, not his SS, but again, orders were orders. But before Grozny could be reached, the Germans had to take control of Malgobek Ridge. In fact, General Ott had already tried several times, and all he had to show for it were casualties. But now that the SS were here, Steiner was ordered to take his men along the valley of River Kerp, thus flanking the stubborn ridge. The idea was to use the Westland and Nordland regiments, send them along the higher ground to either side of the valley, while the tank battalion pushed along below on the valley floor, reinforced by infantry riding in armored vehicles. Providing close support would be batteries of artillery from the Viking and 52nd Corps. This kind of mutually supporting coverage with a strong air presence should see them reach their target city, that of Sagopshin, some miles up the valley. And yet, Hitler was already draining off air support for Stalingrad. When Steiner asked for air cover, the air commander himself flew down and said, We can't. Why? Because Hitler had given to Ops and Stalingrad priority over you. But here, here's a few older bombers. On September 26, the SS troops were in place. The next morning, they moved out. But right away, Steiner's men had trouble making progress. The enemy, it was obvious, was well supplied. No surprise there, as they were protecting Baku and so fought with determination, which surprised the Germans as they had come to believe their own propaganda, that all Soviet citizens hated Stalin. But the big surprise came in the form of American airplanes and British tanks, 
which had come through, I ran. Fortunately, September 28th was not as bad as the first day, and Sogopshin was getting closer. But before the day was out, a Soviet counterattack with a solid mix of air and ground power pushed back the leading SS troops. Getting back to their armored vehicles, the SS troops were relatively safe, and the panzers were able to push back the weaker British tanks. Yet the Germans, for all their experience and weapons, were not able to ever completely push aside the Soviet defenders. And each second of no forward movement gave the Soviet artillerymen another chance to zoom in on the enemy. The drive had come to a halt. No matter that Kleist and Ott yelled at Steiner, who encouraged his men. So they tried again on September 30th, but it ended with the same results. Oberführer Fritz von Schul, the commander of the Norland Regiment, asked for permission to pull back. He wanted to reorganize his men, give them a day of rest, and then hit the area again, but in a different way. But General Ott said no. Yet Steiner said yes, and that amount of daylight, small as it may have been, on the battlefield, between the Wehrmacht and the Waffen-SS, was enough. The Viking pulled back. Before General Ott could make dire threats, the Viking rushed forward again, this time on October 2nd. Using coordination, but mostly speed, the SS troops and vehicles slammed into the Soviet defenses, getting in behind the front line. That was enough to unravel the line and take the town of Zagopshin. Ott was relieved, but still furious at the gross insubordination. As he could not argue with the results of the SS tactics, the best he could do, and did, was to start rumors that hinted that the SS division, being a multinational one, was having problems, because some of the men were not true Germans. In this ethnically charged Third Reich, that was a serious accusation. In truth, the foreign element of the Viking was only 12%, and the fighting they had endured together since Barbarossa started had melded the men into a strong team. Either way, it was time to go after Malgolbeck Ridge, now that Sogopshin was taken. General Ott was still angry, but told Steiner to lead the way. Steiner picked the Germania Regiment, but again, there would be no air support. The SS leader knew this would get a lot of his men killed unnecessarily, so he started screaming that he would take this issue up personally to the Reichsführer SS Himmler. This threat alone brought a group of Stukas to assist with the attack. On October 5th, the Germania pushed east, with the rest of the Viking to their south, with the regular army units to their north. The day went well, with a foothold being obtained. The next day saw further advancement, to which the Soviets, reading the writing on the wall, fell back, thus getting ready for the Battle of Grozny. But before that heavily defended city, just north of Georgia, and under 300 miles from Baku, could be taken, the next hill, Hill 701, had to be captured. With this taken, the invaders would be within 50 miles of Grozny. Yet Steiner was reluctant. To threaten Grozny, even from a distance, was to put the Red Army troops and the Soviet 14th Air Army there on notice 
and when they responded, the Germans would need many more men to hold them back. And Steiner was guessing massive German reinforcements would not be forthcoming. But General Ott humiliated Steiner to the point that he had his men move out. On October 15th, the Viking attacked Hill 701, and it was the Finnish battalion that took the height the next day. But the Germans did not know, could not know, that besides some short-lived thrusts, this was as far south as they would go. There never was a Battle of Baku, and the Caspian Sea stayed out of German hands. All the arguing up to this point between General Ott and Steiner made the OKH nervous. The last thing they needed was the two leading figures fighting, or worse, not working together in the face of such enemy numbers. So the new Army Chief of Staff, General Kurt Zeitler, flew down to assess the situation. Seeing the mutual hatred, he had the Viking pull back a bit to the west and told Steiner that his division would now be transformed into the 5th SS Panzer Grenadier Division Viking. Now that the carrot had been given, it was time to administer the stick. Steiner was told that another Soviet offensive had trapped the German 6th Army in Stalingrad. Further, Army Group A in the Caucasus was close to being cut off. It must be said that Hitler's ambition could not be matched with reality, hence his forces, getting smaller all the time, were going further and further afield, opening themselves up to counterattacks, flank attacks, and general encirclement. So on December 22nd, Viking was ordered to move north to help the 4th Panzer Army break through to Stalingrad. What the Viking nor General Ott could know was that this order would end up being the beginning of a general withdrawal from the Caucasus region. The high watermark here had just been reached by Nazi Germany. By December 30th, the Viking had been carried by train to Simovniki, about 150 miles or 241 kilometers southwest of Stalingrad. This was supposedly the headquarters of the 4th Panzer Army. But when the Vikings showed up, there was no one there. The town had been deserted. Soon Steiner was radioed that the Dash rescue mission to Stalingrad had been canceled. Now the Viking would act as a rear guard for a general retreat back to Rostov. Had Steiner thought about the fact that the 4th Panzer had just left the area before they arrived, he may have realized he and his were now in a precarious position. So, Viking started making its way west, minus the Westland Regiment and a battalion of Germania, with the 5th Panzer Battalion. They were to stay in Smovniki for seven more days to give all else in the area time to retreat. The SS units did their job, and not only saved the balance of the Viking, but also Kleist's 1st Panzer Army, which was also rushing back to get behind the River Don. Yet Vikings' retreat was not a cakewalk. They did not have to stand up to Soviet T-34s, but they still had to deal with the wintry conditions. As the land they traveled across was rolling hills, now covered in snow, some of the tanks could not make it and had to be left behind. As for the Westland Regiment, 
and those tasked with it to watch everyone's back, they did encounter packs of T-34s. Fortunately for the Germans, the numbers they clashed with were too small to create a serious challenge. Not until early February did the Viking finish its 125-mile or 201-kilometer retreat west, now back at Rostov. Then it was told its new position would be about 50 miles north of Rostov at Stolino, modern-day Donetsk, to take its place in this new defensive line. But not the Nordland Regiment. It was to be the core of a new unit, the 11th SS Volunteer Panzer Grenadier Division, Nordland. In their place, the Viking would receive a battalion of Estonian troops. Not exactly a fair trade. In his innermost self, Hitler had to recognize the failure of his summer campaign. They were no further east than they had been in July of 1942. Worse yet, in the Ukraine, there were now holes in the German lines, as they did not have enough men to secure the entire front. The question was, what would Stalin do? For Berlin firmly believed this man, who had been throwing his men at the invaders since the beginning, would not let the current situation go unchallenged. As the Viking was watching, all of its work being undone, the Liebstandarte Reich and Totenkopf were in France, being upgraded to Panzer Grenadier Divisions. The upgrade was due to Hitler's adoration for the Waffen-SS. Their location was due to Hitler's fears of an Allied cross-channel invasion. Indeed, an attempt was made on August 19, 1942, at Dieppe in northern France. But that failed miserably. Still, it taught the Westerners a few things for next time, on D-Day. Back to the SS, not only was their latest billet a much easier pill to swallow, the men of the Totenkopf were thrilled to have Theodore Eck back. But having pulled out so many men and still wanting to move forward in 1942, not to mention readying to deal with the guaranteed winter offensive from Stalin, Hitler had Himmler, who was only too happy to do so, lower the qualifications to get in to the Waffen-SS. When Barbarossa commenced, the military units of the SS, as in frontline strength, had around 100,000 men and another 60,000 in reserve or being trained. But with these changes, by September of 42, there were now 142,000 frontline troops and another 45,000 in reserve or being trained. And Himmler would not stop there. Thus, a year later, in September of 43, the Waffen-SS had 280,000 men fighting and another 70,000 to back them up. And, of course, the upgraded Waffen-SS was better served by Himmler than the Wehrmacht. Normally, Panzer Grenadier Divisions were given a single tank battalion, but SS formations were given two battalion tank regiments not to mention the towed artillery, anti-tank, and anti-aircraft guns. Then there was the half-tracked SPW-251, the precursor to the armored personnel carrier. It would carry 10 men, had an open top, protected by a fixed machine gun. These vehicles made a difference right from the start, 
and as such, Germany could not build enough of them, nor fast enough, for the various fronts. But the SS definitely got them. Then there was the Mark VI, or Tiger I tank. The previous tanks were from designs back in the 1930s. This was a different animal. 57 tons, it had an 8.8 centimeter main gun that could take out a T-34 from 1,500 meters, all protected by its 100 millimeter frontal armor. When this came out in the fall of 42, the advantage went back to the Germans and would stay that way until early 1944. But for whatever reason, the Totenkopf did not get their company of these about 20 tanks, until after the Kharkov battle in 1943. If there had ever been any questions, Himmler and his Waffen-SS divisional commanders constantly tried to make clear that they were separate from the army. They served Hitler and were superior due to their beliefs in and focus on Hitler and Himmler's racist ideas. Of course, having access to such a large force, now with experience and the latest equipment, should have been seen as a saving grace for the Wehrmacht, who were struggling in Russia. But again, the Waffen-SS was seen differently by Himmler, but also by Hitler. Instead, the SS units should act independently, but still help out in the East as a strategic reserve, putting down trouble spots as they rose. Yet Hitler had several plates up in the air at the same time. First, when the Allies landed in North Africa in November 42, he became worried that this would inspire the people of Vichy France to rise up. So, on November 10th, that part of France was invaded, and due to a lack of resistance, it was occupied just 17 days later. And as the motorized units for the Liebstandarte and Das Reich had helped in this, their recently scheduled training fell behind. Indeed, ex-Totenkopf Division would stay in Vichy, France for a while longer, thus upending its training, something that the SS took very seriously. But then came Stalin's Operation Uranus, beginning on November 19th of 42. The Soviets had launched a massive two-pronged thrust to either side of Stalingrad, currently held by the German 6th Army. By November 24th, the city was surrounded, and it would stay that way until February of 43, when General Paulus of the 6th surrendered with his survivors. But more than that, there was now a 300-mile-wide gap in the German line behind the city. Stalin wasted no time in sending additional forces through it, and like a loose thread, this weak spot threatened to undo other areas, like the Germans in the southern Ukraine. So by December 42, the Liebstandarte and the Das Reich were ordered to prepare to head to the Eastern Front again. That hole had to be plugged. As January of 43 went by, the various SS divisions busied themselves with military training. This level of preparedness was matched by their new winter uniforms quilted fur-lined jackets with fur hood and reversible warm fur-lined trousers. These would have saved more than a few lives during the winter of 41-42, but the men had them now so knew they were going to Russia. 
Being carried on hundreds of trains, the units left France and began to arrive at Kharkov near the end of January. As they began to unload their equipment, the Waffen-SS men could see that they were needed. The regular army units had the look of the defeated in their eyes, not to mention that they were freezing and having a hard time getting regular meals. It was the winter of 41-42 all over again. As the Soviets were within long-range artillery fire, they were shelling all the time. So some of the regiments of the Liebstandarte and the Defuhrer gathered their armor, guns, vehicles, and reconnaissance teams and set out. Their place on the line would be about 15 miles east of Kharkov on the river Donitz. However, on the eastern side, as they felt they could hold the Soviets back and wanted to be ready to push east, should it come to that. Besides which, they wanted to save the land on the west side of the river for all the retreating troops coming their way. The first to be rescued by these SS units was the 320th Infantry Division, yet its progress was hampered by some 1,500 wounded men. Obergruppenführer Hauser now in charge of this new SS Panzer Corps, wanted to get to those men before the Soviets did. And he had the perfect tool, the SPW-251 half-track. They would dash to their comrades, load them up, and race back to the river. Chosen for this assignment was the 3rd Battalion of the Liebs 2nd Panzer Grenadier Regiment, commanded by Sturmbannführer Jochen Piper. The 3rd Battalion fought through the Soviets' leading troops and met up with the 320th Infantry. To the SS leader on the scene, the men, limping, bleeding, carrying each other, reminded him of a parade of misery. Still, the men were loaded up and taken back to German lines. Not that everything went smoothly, though. During the journey, a detachment of about 25 men got separated and trapped in a small village. There, they were all killed by partisans, their vehicles torched. When Piper heard of this, he went to the village with his men, burned everything down, and shot all he could find. This would not stop the partisans, but it helped keep many afraid of the Waffen-SS. Still, the bigger war was looming. Despite the SS rescue, the Soviets were still coming west, and in large numbers. SS Panzer Corps Commander Hauser found out from a report that Kharkov was Stalin's next target, as he had large armies coming ever on to the north and south of the city. Before the Germans had taken it, Kharkov was making T-34s, and Stalin wanted it back. Hence, he was building up for another encirclement. But it was the southern wing of this attack that worried Hauser more. If the Soviets took Dnipropetrovsk on the river Dnieper, about 100 miles to the southwest of Kharkov, then not only would the Germans' ability there to retreat be hampered, but the SS formation would be cut off from other German forces in the southern Ukraine. Basically, those forces would be lost. As if hoping to prove Himmler right in his thinking, of the SS, of its aggressiveness, its ability to act independently, provided it was given the proper equipment, Hauser on February 11th gathered and launched what SS units he could 
Men from the Liebstandarte and Das Reich, led by Sepp Dietrich, with two battalions from Das Reich's Defuhrer Regiment and the division's motorcycle battalion. This, of course, was Kurt Myers and his men. They would be joined before the fighting was over by another regiment and the Lieb's 1st Panzer Battalion. This was a well-balanced force with aggressive and experienced leaders that knew how to compensate for their relatively small numbers. A fully mobile force, they took off on February 11th, racing, using speed to make up for the lack of firepower, and was able to surprise the enemy troops at Marefa, about 10 miles southwest of Kharkov, and take the town. To be sure, the enemy was already operating in the area, but this Kampfgruppe was able to smash into them, scatter all before them, and keep moving. From there, they turned south with Meyer's Motorcycle Reconnaissance Battalion leading the way. But the further from Kharkov they got, the more enemy troops they ran into. No matter, they continued to slice and move, hitting the Soviet troops in the right flank as they were driving west, not unlike running a man through with your sword in his side while he expects an attack from the front. But perhaps getting a little too cocky, Meyer and his men reached and captured the town of Bereka, about 25 miles south of Marefa. But as there were more enemy troops there, the Soviets regrouped, and soon Meyer's battalion was the one surrounded. Calling in for help, soon the Defuhrer's 2nd Battalion, borrowing the 3rd Battalion's half-tracks, raced down, joined by some 15 panzers. Again, they came upon the Soviets quickly, who were all looking inward, and were able to shoo away the troops around Meyer. By February 18th, this location was used as a defensive line that protected Kharkov from the south. Another fire put out by the SS. Yet they could not be everywhere. Kharkov was still threatened, now from the north. Indeed, by the time Hauser found out about this latest threat, there were Soviet troops at the outskirts of the city. Hauser knew the situation was militarily untenable. But the only way to withdraw to form a new defensive line was to ask permission from Hitler. How could an SS man who pledged his life to de Fuhrer ask for such a thing? For every officer knew that Kharkov had become the latest grudge match in this personal war between Hitler and Stalin.